Well, let's begin today with a word of prayer. I'm glad to see all of you here, and I trust that your hearts will be stirred and challenged today as we look at God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your goodness, for your mercy. Lord, how grateful we are that you spoke a word and an entire creation leapt into existence. And Father, you didn't just create an amazing world, you created people like us in order that we might know and enjoy and understand what's behind all of this and ultimately we would come to know you. We pray you'll guide us in the time that we have together today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are looking at the gospel storyline. How do we follow the storyline of the Bible? And uh, the first week, uh, we did an overview, and then part one was, why would God create this world? We didn't quite finish answering that question, so we're going to begin there today. And uh, uh, the king and queen of creation, Adam and Eve, we're going to be looking at them today. And then, uh, I won't go through the others, you'll see that, we'll develop that a little bit later. But I want to say a word about worldview, uh, how you perceive things, how you understand things. Uh, uh, the world that's out there is processed through our mind in a way that uh, uh, can be very different. So there's been a huge cultural shift in the West in the way we understand our world. Up until the Reformation, the dominant uh, worldview was theism, that God made this world and we're his creatures and we're morally accountable to him, and that was pretty universal in the West. Following that, during the Enlightenment, it kind of went to a deistic view, a mechanistic view. The world is like a machine. God created it. He wound it up. And, but now he's not directly involved in that. And there were huge changes that took place in the way you understand the world. The way you live is going to matter whether you see this as God's world or whether you see this as just a, a machine that's been wound up that's unwinding now. But where we are today is a secular age, and a secular age is no God. There is no God. The only thing that exists is the natural world that's around us. And let me tell you, friends, every one of you, every day, are bombarded by that worldview. And it can be demonstrated in a number of ways. When's the last time that you heard uh, a hurricane, a tornado, a natural disaster called an act of God? been years. I remember, you know, that that was common. Uh, how many of you have uh, had uh, an illness in the last year or two that required a, a visit, medication, or something? How many of you have had something like that? I certainly have had my share. How many of you have gone to the elders and asked them to pray for you? What does James say? Any one of you sick? Let them go to the elders and they'll pray for you. You know, and so in our mind, though, we believe doctors and medicines are a lot more effective than going to our elders and asking them to pray for us. How did we get there? Well, there's something that's shaping the way we think, and you can look at a number of examples of that. So the reality is you're going to express your worldview. 
you're, you're going to express what you really think and how you see the world. I've mentioned this term, social imaginary. That's the world of Charles Taylor. It's a different way of describing worldview. And it really is not so much what you think through, but just kind of the way you imagine, just the way everything feels to you. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And so we have to ask the question, is God an abstract concept? Is he just an idea? Is God a philosophy? Or is he involved in drama? We have the uh, uh, Yahweh uh, chair up here. Did, is he a dramatic uh, producer and director and player in that? And let me ask a second question. Uh, uh, if there are so many different dramas playing, how do we decide which one to play? And the reality is everyone is looking through some lens, okay, your worldview, it's not what you're looking at, it's what you're looking through and how everything appears. So here are some options. There's Darwin's drama, Survival of the Fittest, Red and Tooth and Claw, everything is about competition, it's about survival. And in Darwin's world, there's no God. Everything is simply a natural process. Now, friends, that's the dominant view that we live. That's what the schools teach. That's what the entertainment industry puts out. That's what the tech people, you know, all, all of the social media. That is the underlying drama that shapes the way people live. That's the lens through which we see everything else. How about the American dream? He who wins with the most stuff, he who dies with the most stuff wins. I remember seeing that uh, on a bumper sticker of a, I forget, it was an expensive car, and it said, he who dies with the most toys, die. no, he who uh, dies with the most toys wins. But the fact is, he still dies. You know, and, and we are constantly pressed to look at life through that lens, okay? How much am I going to get? How, what, what does this mean financially? What are the risks for this? And you remember, remember the Beatles song, Nowhere Man? Uh, in fact, uh, I, I, let me pull that up so you can see it. Oops. Uh, oh, I just lost it. Where'd it go? Oh, here it is. Okay. Here's the song, Nowhere Man. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Now notice this next one. Doesn't have a point of view. What's a point of view? That's the worldview. A nowhere worldview is not no worldview. It's a worldview that says nothing makes sense. I'm not going anywhere. I don't have anyone to answer to. I don't have any direction in life. And so he says, doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Nowhere, man, please listen. You don't know what you're missing, nowhere, man. The world is at your command. And he goes on, okay? Uh, and, and so I want to, uh, let me get rid of that. Uh, let me go back to this. The, 
the nowhere man, again, you see, it's a lens through which you're going to see life. And if you live that way, you're going to miss something. But there's another drama, and that's Cross Theater, directed by Yala. That's a way to see the world. I can't tell you how important what we're going to cover today is for how you understand life and how you live your life. And everything that we're saying today is being challenged by the narrative, the dominant narrative of our day. And so we have to go back, and it's been my argument that we're only going to know that if we go back and look at Scripture, if we look at this through the lens of God's Word. So today we're going to talk about the king and queen of creation, their rise and fall. We're going to look at four things. The earth created the stage of this drama... The shaping and directing, that is what Yahweh does, what God does in shaping and directing his image bearers. The king and queen of creation, what does covenant stewardship mean? How important is that? And finally, the fall and the exile of the king and queen. If you miss Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you will miss an understanding of what God's been doing throughout. So it's important that we understand that. Uh, and so God creates a stage, taking that phrase, all the world's a stage, from Shakespeare's famous line. The reality is there is a creator, an uncreated creator, Yahweh is the Hebrew term that's used, and creation now is the creative word births a world. Uh, just speaks a word, and the world comes into existence. Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan walking along, humming this tune, and life just springing forth. That's a beautiful picture of what we have in Genesis 1 and 2. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, and it came into being. You remember the 2 Corinthians passage? God, who said, let there be light, shined in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this world came into being as a creative act of God. So creation involves heavens and earth. Now, if you look at Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice what it says. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. When God created this world, it wasn't a finished product. He created it kind of in two stages. All of the stuff is here. Then he begins to shape it into the world that we know. Do you see that from the text? It was formless, it was void, and he begins the shaping. And I love the term, the spirit is hovering over. We know that the Father is creator. We know that Jesus is the creator. Everything that exists came by him. We know the spirit's involved. They're all involved in this together. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Lagos, Jesus Christ at work. So the creation uh, takes place in six days. Uh, you have six days and then one day. Uh, we want to take a minute and look at those. God orders creation one day at a time. And so we can read in the text of Scripture, 
God said, let there be light. I'm at verse 3, and there was light. God saw the light that it was good. And it says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, we obviously don't have time to walk through each one of these days and what he created. That's for another place and another time. But what we know is there's a direct creation. God's involved, and there's indirect processes. Let the earth bring forth, you know, the the flowers of the field and the birds and the beast and so forth. So there's direct creation, and yet there's a process that God uses at the same time. It's not evolutionary. You know, it's creational. God's creating these things. And then at the end of those six days, you have the rest. The seventh day, if you go all the way down to the end of uh, uh, chapter 1, Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast arrays. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, so you have six days of creation, then you have the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest is not just something there, but it actually is throughout Scripture. In fact, do you know where the word Sabbath is first used? Anybody know? Notice it's not used in Genesis. It's not used till we come to Exodus 16. And God establishes the Sabbath for the people of Israel. Lots of questions about what that means that we can't talk about now. But what I want you to see is the Sabbath is woven throughout. God rested. Eden was a place of rest. Joshua taking the people into the promised land was a place of rest. Uh, David said there remains a rest. Jesus is a rest for the people of God. You remember all the Sabbath controversies that Jesus was involved with? And then we're looking for a Sabbath rest, and eternity is that. You know, so you can't say, well, it's here or it's here. It's throughout, and it's growing, and it's developing. It's developed typologically. Now, We could take the next six weeks and not get through all of this discussion, but there are three different views of the Sabbath. Uh, One of them is that we have to keep the seventh day. You know, the seventh day was the day of rest, and since you can't change anything in the law, we have to keep that. And there actually in the past have been Seventh-day Baptists that that, that worshipped and maintained the seventh day. There are the first-day Sabbath people, those who believe that we maintain the Sabbath, but we don't do it on Saturday anymore, we do it on Sunday because of the resurrection of Christ. And then there are the Lord's Day people that say, well, it's not really a Sabbath, it's a Lord's Day. We're remembering uh, uh, Jesus' uh, death and his burial and his resurrection. And sometimes in places, this is a huge controversy. People get in big fights. If you're in the first of those, you don't talk to the people in the third of those. That's a huge mistake. You know, there are differences that are there, and we need to appreciate those differences, but we need to work through them and not uh, uh, just uh, uh, fly apart and, and, and go on the attack. Well, let, let's look at what's happening here. Before, uh, uh, there was no shrub. No plant, no rain, no man. 
And then after this process is finished, what do we find? Man was formed in chapter 2. In chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. In chapter 2, then he gives us a more detailed account. He took the dust of the earth and he breathed into his nostrils nephesh hayah. He became a living creature. And so this man is formed, we're going to come back to that in a minute, from the dust of the ground, life is conveyed, God breathes the breath of life in, certainly the Spirit of God has something to do with that, and then what he does is he plants a garden, he plants a garden in the east, you'll see a constant reference to the east, man is placed in the garden, now it's really important that you get this. It's not like God created man and said, okay, do whatever you want. Okay, God placed the man in the garden. The garden is filled with trees. There's flowering and there's fruit-bearing trees. There is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They become important. We see them throughout Scripture. We come to Revelation 22. It picks up from Genesis 2 and 3. Water flows from the garden. There's a sense in which the garden is high, and the water flows down from that. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, Euphrates. We're still familiar with the Tigris and Euphrates. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Adam was created outside, and he was brought inside. Okay? God placed the man in the Garden of Eden. That was the center of blessing. That was the sanctuary. Okay, I want you to get the picture. The whole earth wasn't the Garden of Eden. In the earth was undeveloped. There is one place that God places the man and the woman as a sanctuary. It's more like a temple. If you want to read something really challenging and excellent, uh, uh, Greg Beal has a couple of books on the temple, the Eden as the temple of God. Why do you come to the temple and they have the pomegranates and all the things that remind you of the Garden of Eden? Why do you see that when you come to Revelation? Because there's something that's flowing through this. It's a sanctuary. Adam and Eve were not only king and queen, but they were priests uh, there to maintain it. It was man's first home. There was the presence of God. God walked with him in the uh, middle of the day. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I would love to uh, have Jesus Christ stand here and give us a fuller explanation of the tree of life. Did they eat that? You know, they were put out of the garden later on. Uh, lots of questions that I have about that that uh, I think I'll have to wait uh, to find the answer. It was elevated with a place where the waters flowed out from. But the critical thing are the players. You remember that statement in Psalms, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God says, let us. So God takes the initiative in this. We didn't just happen, we didn't emerge from a slime pit somewhere, but in fact God took the initiative and said, let us make man. And he's talking about humanity in our image after our likeness. Now, I want to key on those two things, image and likeness. What does it mean and what's the difference with that? 
we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So the divine plan is that he places them there so that they may rule. Okay, if you go back, look at Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Okay, they, they are to rule. That's the position that God's given them. The idea of image is they are to rule over creation. Likeness is they are to be fruitful and multiply. So those words don't mean the same thing. There's a slight difference between them. So let's take a minute and look at that. Likeness has to do with the relationship that we have with God as sons. We are sons of God. Jesus is the unique son, but we are sons and daughters of God by virtue of creation itself. Image, what does that mean? Image has to do with our relationship with the world. Likeness is our relationship to God. Image has to do with our relationship with the world. And there was this imprint, this authority as king and queen of creation. Okay? The idea of kingdom is throughout scripture. It begins in Genesis 1. It's going to go all the way through to the end. So what is the image of God? Again, you can read... A hundred books on this. There's so much that's being said. I try to reduce it down and say, well, the sense is that we are naturally who we are, but there's a supernatural mark on that. We're not just a piece of stuff. We're something that God created, and there is a God consciousness there that we can't eradicate. There are mental and spiritual qualities that are different from the animals, the trees, the flowers, everything else. There's the physical side of it. Some of them have thought, well, being in the image of God doesn't have anything to do with the body because God doesn't have a body. No, it does. He created us as embodied spirits. Jesus Christ in heaven right now is an embodied spirit. Okay, Not floating up there in some kind of ethereal, non-physical form, but he is the God-man in a resurrected body. There's a physical dimension. There's a representational dimension. We're here to represent God. There's a capacity to relate, male and female. I just read the passage in Mark where the question came up, is it lawful to divorce a wife for any cause? And he said, well, from the beginning, God made them what? We got 112 different gender options today. God made them male and female. Now, listen, friends. If you look through the lens of 112 different gender options and different pronouns, the world looks very different than if you look through the lens that says male and female. All of the transgender stuff that's going on today and all the surrounding stuff comes because there's a rejection of this worldview. We don't want to accept that. We're not going to be binary. See, God was a binary. He made them male and female. And they, he created this wonderful capacity to relate Communication. Have you had a recent conversation with your flower? I know people think if you talk to flowers, they're going to get better. I don't know if it's the carbon dioxide or what it is, but 
The fact is, you can talk to your plant all day, but your, you know, your orchid, you know, your tulip is not talking back to you. Okay, it's not that way. But what did God do? Communication is an amazing gift from God. It's absolutely amazing. So, Psalm 8, 5 through 8. You remember that great passage, crowned with glory and honor? Uh, And he says, they are to have dominion. We are to exercise authority and control. And that the world is to be placed under its feet. Okay, there's a sense of legitimate oversight. Again, in the worldview of our day, no authority. Anybody that tells me I have to do this or I can't do this has to be rejected. That's oppressive. But it's because they're looking through the wrong lens. You know, looking through the right lens, we realize that there is something good about authority. They were to rule over the animals. And this this image was not just functional, just something they did, but it's what they were. That's who we are. Okay, we're made in the image of God. And so as servant king, man, Adam and Eve, are going to mediate God's rule in creation. They were given the task of ruling this world. So what what does God do when he casts the players? Okay, we've we've kind of pictured this as a storyline, and we have this, this drama of redemption taking place. So the divine plan goes public. God created man in his own image, created a male and female, and God then blessed them and commissioned them to rule and fill the earth and endowed them with food and sustenance and everything that they needed. Okay, I want you to go back and get that picture. We're looking at Genesis. Again, if we had more time, we could walk through each one of those things, but I'm just pulling out parts of Genesis 1 and 2. And what God is doing is he's directing all of this. I want you to think through this. He took the man to the garden. Adam didn't just look around and said, you know what? I think I'm going to settle down over here. Okay, I'm going to move to New York City. I'm going to move to Los Angeles. I'm going to move to Kansas. No, no. God took the man to the garden. And what does it say? He put him to work and care for the garden. It's not like he decided, well, I think I'll be a horticulturalist. No, God took the man. He put him to work to care for the garden. He scripted his responsibilities in the garden. He's answerable to God's command. Does that make sense? Okay, he's not there doing his own thing. He's God's agent. You know, he's there to serve God's purposes. He has freedom to eat from any of the trees of the garden, except not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Crystal clear, isn't it? We can read the text. You know, uh, you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a warning. There were sanctions. If you eat that, the day you eat it, you're going to die. God is serious about this. It's not something we're just pretending. It's not just a story that we tell. And so you have the casting call. Think of this again in terms of this drama. I wish we had time to walk through this. Uh, Have you ever wondered, why was Adam given the task of naming all of these animals? 
you know, and going through and the hippopotamus and the raccoon and the squirrel and the snail and the mosquito, and my son loves the jellyfish, the hydromedusas. I learned that from him. Uh, why did he do that? In order to demonstrate none of those corresponded to him. He saw Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Mr. and Mrs. Moose. I don't know if you all saw the thing on the, the internet. I saw recently a woman in Alaska was out walking her dog, and a moose ran up behind her and snocked her to the ground and stepped on her. And there was a car riding along beside, and they're taking a video of this thing, and they get on it, but that, that's not where we're going today. Anyhow, uh, uh, God doesn't want man. It's not good for man to be alone. So he addresses that. He names the creature. No suitable helper among all of those creation for Adam. And what does he do? Puts him into a deep sleep. You ought to take some time and just go through Scripture and look at the times that God put people to sleep. You remember when they were after uh, uh, David and Saul and his company come in and they all fall into a deep sleep? There's some interesting examples of that, but God put Adam into a deep sleep, and from Adam's rib he made a woman. God gave to the man a beautiful helper. When Adam saw Eve, the first words out of his mouth were, wow, this is amazing. Now, I can't find the text, but I'm sure one day we'll find out that's exactly what he said. Now, Adam accepted the gift and named her woman. And so God says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Here's the leaving and the weaving and the cleaving. Now, what becomes important is to recognize, I want to uh, try to help you understand the difference between a contract and a covenant. Okay, Covenant is foundational to everything that's happening in Scripture. This is not well appreciated and well understood. The centrality of the covenant is the backbone of the storyline. You're not going to be able to follow what's happening if you don't keep track of these covenants. Now, the same thing is true in life. Before I was married, you know, I enjoyed being, you know, dating other gals. After I got married, what happened? Well, you don't date other gals. Now you're faithful to your spouse. So this, this idea of, of the covenant, it changes the way you live life. So we want to look at that a bit today, the contract and the covenant. The queen of creation, this is a covenant stewardship. Okay, They are God's agents in a formal sense that they are stewards. They're answerable to him. So let's look at a covenant, and let's look at a contract. Let's see the difference, okay? A covenant, the focus is personal relationship. We talked about that last time. Marriage, the covenant you make in marriage, is different than the contract you make to buy an automobile. You see that? And God isn't just in a contract with us. He's in a covenant. The terms are secondary. The relationship is primary. Now, notice the difference. In a contract, the focus of contract is goods or services. You know, you're buying something or you want somebody to serve you in some way. Relationship is secondary. When I go to buy a car, I'm not looking to make a new friend. If I do, that may be great, but I don't really care about making a friend. I need a car. 
Okay, and so the, 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 the car is a lot more important than the relationship that I have. And so when we think about covenant, we need to understand that in a covenant, there is this mutual relationship. This is an amazing thing to recognize that God enters into a relationship with us, a formal relationship. Um, he makes promises to us. You know, there's a sense of loyalty. This is what shapes the covenant relationship that we have with God. Every time we observe the Lord's table and say, this is the blood of the new covenant, we're affirming a relationship that exists, that God's loved us with an everlasting love. He's made promises to us, and we make promises to him that we're going to follow him and obey him. There's a sense of loyalty that that we're I just read the account of my Bible reading this morning Peter said if everybody denies you I'll never deny you you remember what Jesus said for the cock crows you're going to deny me three times and by the way all the rest of the disciples said the same thing and I will never deny you and when they captured him when they seized him they all fled look on the other hand a contract Mutual benefits, I get a car, they get the money. Uh, it's political in nature. If I don't follow through, there are certain things you can do. It's commercial. There's a sense of obligation. Uh, and so, again, I want you to see, it's not like these two are totally different. There's a lot of overlap here. You see that? And so, but what I want you to see at the heart of a covenant is a relationship. And that relationship is with God. And I want you to see the connection with covenant and plot. You know, how the plot, the unfolding of this thing, works out. So covenants are the very heart of the plot structure of this divine drama. It forms the backbone of this. Okay, it, It's what holds us together. Just as you have a backbone that all the different parts of your body attach to, so it is with that. Covenant is an elected as opposed to a natural relationship. We naturally are creatures, but being a covenant under obligation and oath to God is something that he has chosen to do. God could have done that differently, but he different, but he didn't. And anyhow, what I want you to see is the stable covenant relationship that God establishes is in stark contrast to mythology. And these gods that you never know what they're going to do, that's not true of our God. We have a God that we can depend on. So covenants are oath-bound commitments. There are oaths. There are things that God is going to say. There's an enduring agreement defining the relationship. Okay, every time we take the Lord's table, we are defining the relationship. It involves solemn binding obligations, particularly as we see these develop in the Old Testament. They're specified by at least one of the parties. Okay, so God is going to set out what the expectations and demands are. So when we think of this oath-bound commitment, these covenants are made by formal oath. It's not just happening, but they actually are going to talk about those. It's under the threat of divine curse or sanction. Remember what God said to Adam, don't eat of the tree. The day you eat of the tree, what's the sanction? You're going to die. 
It's ratified with a ritual. You know, uh, and we're going to look at uh, later on at Abraham where God cuts the covenant and he separates the animals and he walks between it. You know, in the uh, uh, old covenant, it was the Passover. The new covenant, it's the table of the Lord. There are often rituals that are associated with that. So what are these covenant structures? Let me just say quickly, there are two different kinds. There's a suzerainty vassal, which is a strong king and a weak one. And then there is the royal grant or the royal charter where the gift is given away. And essentially what we find is the second of these, that God is not in looking to make an agreement with us because he needs something from us. You see that? God doesn't need anything from you. He's giving you something. You know, there is a, a blessing that is going to come with this. So covenant relationships can be international, they can be clans, they can be personal, they can be loyalty, they can be marriage. There are all kinds of different covenants that we find in Scripture. But what we want you to see is the nature of the covenant that God made with Adam. Now, here's a huge question. We could take six weeks on this. Did God make a covenant with Adam? Okay, let me ask for a show of hands. How many of you believe that God made a covenant with Adam? Okay, how many of you do not think that God made a covenant with Adam in Genesis 2? How many of you are too scared to say? Yeah, okay, a whole bunch of you. Well, the, the reality is there are those that say, no, God didn't make a covenant. You know, the covenant uh, is not in the text. You're not going to find the word there. It's only necessary after the fall. There are others that are going to say, yes, he did make a covenant, uh, and there is a clear covenantal context here. Uh, there's a difference between cut a covenant and uphold a covenant. Gentlemen, went, uh, uh, Wellam and Gentry make that argument. We're not going to take time to develop it here. Uh, there's a canonical pattern here. So I kind of grew up on the no side. I know I've been right on this. I just don't know which time. You know, because I've said, no, there's not really a covenant. And I've been kind of persuaded to say, yeah, I really think this is a covenant that he makes with Adam, uh, though it's, it's hard to nail down, and you don't want to die on that hill, okay? There's room on whichever side that you come down. But listen to me. Covenant means there are promises that cannot be broken. God's made some promises to you that are undergirded by this covenant relationship. God cannot break his covenant and be faithful to himself. That's the reason we can trust God's word. And that's very different when you look through this lens than you look through this word. We've got to figure it out on our own because there's no God there to help us. Any of you seen The Hunger Games or uh, the Harry Potter series? There is no God. There's no supernatural. There's no one to appeal to. You've got to figure this out on your own. On the other hand, there's the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's the Lord of the Ring. Where underneath this is that providence. God promises things that cannot be broken. But then there are obligations that cannot be avoided. Fact is, every one of you are in a, in a covenant relationship to God. The question is, are you submitting to that relationship, or are you violating that relationship? Either in rebellion or in obedience. There are warnings that can't be ignored. 
Okay, uh, eat of this tree and you're going to die. We have those throughout Scripture that are given to us. There are benefits that can't be overstated. To be in a covenant relationship with God is beyond our ability to really express that and explain all that that means. We belong to God. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are his. You see how the covenant works itself out? Now, there are these basic covenants, the covenant with creation, the covenant with Noah. The first one, we don't actually have the term in Scripture. That's why the question, yes or no. But the rest of these are all clearly set forth. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12 and following, the covenant with Moses, the law, the covenant with David, 2 Corinthians 17, 2 Chronicles 17, 2 Chronicles 7, uh, we'll look at that, and then the new covenant with Messiah. Okay, so I want you to see when we talk about covenants, we're not uh, imposing something on the Scripture. We're looking to see what the Scripture itself actually says. So how do we connect the Old Testament and the New Testament? Again, this would take a whole series to answer this question. There are two basic models of relating Old Testament and New Testament. Dispensationalism. How many of you remember the, the charts? I remember they used to be on the wall, the seven dispensations. They had all this beautiful you know, artwork that was there. Uh, and so one of the ways to understand this is dispensational. And then there's covenant theology. Presbyterians, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, articulates that. Covenant theology uh, uh, sees a series of covenants not really expressed in Scripture that, that oversee everything else. Again, we don't have time to go into it. And then there's a new model that's developed. And uh, I have in the past called myself New Covenant Theology. Some have used this term progressive covenantalism. Now, don't take progressive in the political sense of, you know, of the conservative and the progressive, but progressive in the sense that it's moving along the line. It's making progress. How you understand and how you read the scripture is going to be determined by which one of those lens. Are you going to look through a dispensational lens, through a covenant lens, through a new covenant, progressive covenantalism? Uh, that becomes important. The royal stewardship. Listen now, Adam and Eve were entrusted with royal authority. Okay, They were the king and queen of creation. There was this kingdom consciousness at the very beginning. There was an obligation to fulfill the mandate that God gave to them. Sanctions were imposed. Okay, We've made this point, and now I want you to see Adam becomes a major type in this redemptive drama. Okay, we talked about typology. Again, this is a lens through which we see other things. So Adam is a type. Okay, the acorn and the oak tree. Okay, the acorn becomes the oak tree. And so Adam points forward to the different ones that are going to be significant. Noah is a second Adam. Abraham is a second Adam. Moses is a second Adam. David is a second Adam. All of those are connected with this storyline. All of them are connected with a particular covenant. Jesus Christ is not a second Adam. He's the last Adam. Each one of these characters, Noah and 
Abraham and Moses and David all bring something, you know, to David the kingship. You know, uh, Abraham, uh, the son, you know, the father, and the relationship to the son. He becomes the father of many nations. Jesus Christ becomes the last Adam. So, when you put these pieces together, we have Adam and Eve placed in the garden to develop it, to oversee it, to rule it. How did they do? Well, the fall and the exile. We're going to have to save this. We'll, we'll pick up on this at the beginning of next week. But let me explain why this becomes so important. The way you see people in terms of moral capacity is going to shape everything about your life. Are any of you familiar with a book that was done a year, year and a half ago by Carl Truman called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Anybody familiar? I reread that again this past week. It is tremendous. And it's going to help you understand how did we get from pre-Reformation, a theistic worldview, to an atheistic worldview. But if you go back and you pick out some of the names Rousseau and Nietzsche and Locke and so forth, you're going to find out their view was that people are not the problem. Our nature is good. It's fine. The problem is the culture that's around us. It puts all these laws and all these restrictions. If you just let people express themselves, what's happening in the whole area of sexual mores today? Anyone that sets any kind of authority, anyone that says this is right and that's wrong, is immediately oppressive and they're rejected. Why is that? It's because of this mindset that says people are good. Just let them get back to expressing themselves. If, it's, if, it, if you can do it, if it's natural, then it's good. The problem is all of these laws, and you know who they hate more than anything else? Is God and his law. It's not just government. You know, it's not just church, but it's God himself. And that's why it becomes so important as you look at the world to recognize we're dealing with crippled people, with people whose consciousness and lives have been messed up with sin. And if you miss this, in fact, Revelation, I mean Romans chapter 5, is going to give us that great section where it talks about how sin came from Adam, was passed on to the rest of us, and listen, in fact, Gretchen reminded me of this the other day. We see this cute little baby and think, how beautiful. I've been going back and uh, organizing some of our family albums, and I must have 15,000 pictures of our five grandchildren. You know, not so many of our children because we didn't have uh, those. And you look at them and say, how cute. And Gretchen, what did you say they actually are? Vipers and diapers, okay? What, what do we mean by that? Well, it's because of the sin that's underneath. That's what we're going to deal with. Adam and Eve came into the world without this, and man, when they went down that path, it changes everything. And in fact, it's going to set up our whole context 
to see the story of the gospel emerge. So we're going to talk about was the fall good or bad. We have to come back next week and we're going to look at that. But I just want to remind you again, you need to look at the world whoops, through this lens. Okay, uh, People are not good. People are sinners. We can be saved by grace, but it doesn't take away the reality from the very beginning. We're dealing with a problem of sin. And we're dealing it not just with the vipers in diapers, you know, but you get the teenagers. I don't know, somebody needs to come up with a way to explain each one of it to adults. And the problem is sin has affected all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I want to tell you, if you get on television today, have any kind of a platform to say that, you're going to be hated and you're going to be repudiated because it undercuts the narrative. People aren't bad. It's all of the structures of society that frees them from what we naturally want. Friends, don't let that lens be the lens through which you see this world. Look at that through what God has to say and recognize as ugly as sin is the whole idea of covenant is there's one coming who's going to fix everything that's broken that person is Jesus Christ the mediator of a new covenant let's bow together in prayer father we pray that you would enable us to see this world through your eyes uh, not through the uh, uh, Nowhere man, the, 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 the Darwin's uh, uh, red and tooth and claw, uh, not how much stuff can we get, but Lord, help us to see our lives and people in the world around us through uh, the lens of your word. Help us to understand the developing storyline and what you're doing and how men have responded, and how you've interceded and provided a way that will free us from those things that, that otherwise would destroy us. So we pray, Father, that you will help us put together the pieces of this puzzle and come to understand clearly that you're behind it all. And when we see all of these pieces fit together, we're going to see a beautiful portrait of the face of God. And that face is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.